Alright, Researching Happy, welcome back. This is the podcast all about the stories behind the studies relevant to the research of mental health and well-being. Um, and we really want to look at different perspectives across um, across that really broad field. So this is obviously not just about researchers and today's a really good example of that. So today we've got Dr. Stephen Carbone, who's the CEO of um, an organization called Prevention United based in Victoria, Australia. And um, I invited Stephen on for a number of reasons. Number one, because I think I'm, I'm a big fan of the work that he's doing and I think he attracts a lot of attention to the world of prevention um, and a lot of respect, I think, for his work around the country. Um, but I really wanted to talk to Stephen because a lot of his work is um, relevant to some of the research that I've been doing for my own PhD, which was based on this dual continual model of mental health, which if you've listened to the episode with um, Professor Corey Keyes, you would have heard all about that. Um, and what I wanted to do was, as you'll hear in the episode, was to talk to Stephen about his work, but really frame it within the context of the dual continual model, because I think there's a lot of people around um, the world, you know, particularly in Australia, who really are starting to see that this idea of uh, how we understand the relationship between mental illness and mental health can make a big difference to the way we think about um, our mental health services and, and what that means for prevention rather than treatment and, and uh, for a, lot, a number of ideas that we'll get into. I think what I really like about Stephen, as, as I hope you'll appreciate, is that he really does bring that nuance of bringing together the worlds of you know mental health, it, the worlds around the idea of mental health. So mental you know illness and treatment and re- recovery um, and the pressing need that we uh, you know for reform and for improvement and greater funding in those areas, but the concurrent need of of uh, prevention and well-being services in you know sort of in that early intervention, but also for recovery as well. Um, and, and not a lot of people sort of get that nuance. I don't think they really frame it as a an either or. Um, probably comes from you know. Um, like you know a drought mentality or something like that of 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 uh you know there's only this small amount of money how do we best use that money and and i want to spend on my thing not on your thing um where i think Stephen really is coming in saying actually we need uh you know rather than dividing up the pieces of the pie we just need a bigger pie um what was really cool i'm just going to pull it up um was that my uh like i guess on a personal note my I got the feedback from my PhD examiners. Sorry, give me one sec. Um, which was accepted um, with some... Oh, now I can't type my password in. Hang on. Terrible, uh, terrible editing here by me. That's okay. Um, I don't think that counts as editing. But anyway, what uh, I got the feedback from the two examiners. For those who don't know, it goes out to professors from around the world uh, who are who are anonymous to me. And I've got a summary from from one of them. I'll just cut to the chase that's relevant here. They sort of talk, they, here's, a, here's a quote, basically. The issue being investigated, which f- for those listening is the, the dual continual model. The issue being investigated has more, relevant, more relevance than many people realize, as it's an interplay between conceptual and empirical work with significant real-life implications for individuals and human service systems. And that's really the whole point. That's why I wanted to start the PhD because I thought there was relevance on this dual continual model. Um, again, go back and listen to the episode, episode one with um, Corey Coos, who really like pushed a lot of this stuff forward. Um, 
and and hopefully we'll hear today. You'll see from today that with Stephen, this is um, this is the whole point. You know, this is this is uh, something that I think inspires a lot of his work, and um, you know, this I think gives you a glimpse of what we could be doing in Australia and and around the world. So, um, welcome to the show. If this is your first episode. Uh, otherwise. Welcome back. If you've listened to a couple of episodes in the past, really, really pleased with how the show has been going so far and we've had some great feedback, um, but really open to more feedback. So please let us know whether it's in the comments or, or you know, privately. Um, like and subscribe to the channel. If you don't mind, you can now rate the channel, which is really helpful to get word out about this thing, um, whether that's on um, Apple Podcasts or YouTube or Spotify. Um, but most importantly, I think just share this with someone else. You know, you think if, if you're hearing this and you think this would actually really resonate or really help someone that I know, just share that to them. I think that's the way I want to go about this thing. So kind of like a grassroots approach. So, um, that's enough for me. Welcome and, uh, enjoy the episode. All right. So today it is a pleasure to have Stephen Carbone, Dr. Stephen Carbone, uh, here with us on researching happy. Uh, we've got a little bio about Stephen here. Uh, Stephen is the founder and CEO of Prevention United. So he has an extensive clinical experience in mental health, having worked as a general practitioner in Melbourne's west and northwest suburbs as a medical officer in Victoria's specialist mental health services. Stephen also has experience in mental health policy and program and service development, having held senior roles in the Victorian Department of Health, Headspace and Beyond Blue. Stephen, welcome. Thanks, Matt. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. Had some uh, fun technical troubles in the morning, but that's okay. Here we are. This is all. This is all still learning for for me. Um, how about yourself? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, look, uh, looking forward to the conversation. It's uh, it's a great uh, podcast series you're putting together, and yeah, thanks very much for the opportunity to be one of the guests. No, I appreciate it. So obviously, just to kick off, I think um, I've already you sort of you when I asked you to come on the show you had the same reaction of a few other people that have had the same thing of oh I'm a, I'm not a researcher and I think I've probably not made the the rules clear you know I, I'm the boss basically I choose what's uh, <laughs> what's in and what's out and this is the idea for the show is this is all about the world of happiness and and that's not just research um, that you know there are all these different roles like translating this and and uh, you know, advocating for it. And that's, I think, where, where your organization comes in. So I thought we'll just kick off um, just learning a little bit about yourself. So who you are and how you've come to be here. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, so, yeah, look, I think I've had uh, a somewhat of an unusual path. Uh, I mean, I originally trained um, in medicine, so uh, uh, graduated with a medical degree. And, you know, as you all do, uh, did my intern year and, and a couple of years in the sort of hospital system, trying mm. to work out what career path or what specialty I wanted to follow. And uh, I wasn't, you know, 100% sure, but I, I think I, I was interested in psychiatry. And so I did do some work here um, in Victoria in, you know, what we call the specialist mental health care system or, and, you know, back in the day, it was working in uh, standalone psychiatric inpatient units. So, um, so, I, but I was also interested in, in, in being a generalist and, and so I also did some work in general practice. And so for a little while there, I oscillated between the two and, and finally decided probably a career in general practice was for me, but always had a very deep interest and, and passion um, in, in mental health and, uh, and mental ill health. And so 
Um, most of my career was really spent as a, as a clinician, you know, trying to support people struggling with their mental health, experiencing mental health challenges and, and conditions. Um, but I guess I was also fairly interested in some of the more big picture stuff. I, mm. I guess I've been a little bit of a, uh, a political animal and a policy nerd. So did some further studies and, and got some opportunities. Uh, uh, and my first sort of foray into that world was with the, yeah, the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services, as it was called back then, in their mental health branch. So that branch was responsible for trying to, um, you know, look after and improve the specialist mental health service system here in Victoria. So, you know, so that led to uh, some other jobs, uh, doing some similar things. So I blended clinical work with the uh, policy work, sometimes together, sometimes alternating. Um, but I guess I always had that sort of, you know, focus on how can we do better? How can we make the system better for people experiencing, you know, serious mental health difficulties? And it wasn't until maybe towards the back end of that, that career that I realised, well, well, hang on, uh, you know, we've been putting a lot of effort into improving the mental health service system, but, you know, it feels sometimes like we're still treading water. We're, we're mm. still seeing, you know, a lot of people developing these conditions and not everyone improving from them and always, um, you know, inquiry after inquiry telling us how bad the mental health care system was. And, I then had an opportunity to work at a, a health promotion organisation called uh, Vic Health here in Victoria, and I guess that gave me a new insight, and it made me realise: look, maybe we need to start thinking about how we keep people mentally healthy and well, <laughs> and prevent mental illnesses from occurring in the first place, rather than just taking this reactive and often crisis-driven approach. So, I guess that's what led to the creation of Prevention United. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, initially more about the prevention of mental ill health, but now equally about the promotion of mental well-being as well as the prevention of mental ill health. Cool. And, and so what years were they roughly? I'm just trying to think, was it, was it sort of the emergence of positive psychology that kind of woke you up to some of these things or was it just what you were seeing for over a number of years? Yeah, it was more what I was seeing over a number of years and that experience of working um, in, in a more upstream focused health promotion organization that did focus also on mental health promotion uh, and uh, and then from there doing some further studies undertaking a master of public health um, that sort of really consolidated it and then it was a steep learning curve I had to you know suddenly go into this new discipline this new literature and try to find out as much as I possibly could about this area and absolutely the work of uh, positive psychology then obviously was front and centre and uh, has been very influential in, in how we as an organisation think about this issue now. So I guess I'm a little bit of a late convert to, to the party, but I'm sort of glad I got here in the end. Yeah, very good. Very good. And so you're in Melbourne. How, um, how long has Prevention United been around for? Uh, we've just uh, gone over our uh, fifth anniversary, so uh, okay. uh, five years. But look, we're, we're a, I guess what you would call a, a small but reasonably influential organisation. There's, there's only, uh, at the moment, three staff members, including myself, but we have also a great team of volunteers and other people who do some you know, contract work for us from time to time. Um, but I guess because I've been working in the mental health system for you know, a considerable period of time. It means I've been able to establish some good connections and relationships with people, and that has helped, you know, mm. uh, you know, 
helped our work in trying to um, you know, get the promotion of mental well-being and the prevention of mental ill health on, on the radar and, um, you know, and you know, really no one organisation can do it alone and so we, we, we have been trying to establish partnerships, collaborations um, and having had that experience of working with so many of the you know, more senior people in the mental health sort of community is, has been useful in terms of you know, enabling us to do our work. Mm. So this is probably a silly question and I actually should know it anyway, Stephen, sorry about this, but what is the exact goal of what you're aiming for at Prevention United? Yeah, look, that's a great question. As I said, originally it was about, you know, the primary prevention, stopping mental health conditions before they start, trying to yeah. prevent depression from occurring, trying to prevent anxiety disorders from occurring, trying to prevent whatever disorder we could from occurring. But obviously, you know, the science uh, tells us, you know, more about certain disorders than, than others at this point in time. And, and so it was really to try to decrease the incidence and then the prevalence of mental ill health in the community. Uh, but as I said, I think, you know, the, you know, the, the promotion of mental well-being and the, the prevention of mental ill health overlaps so much. I mean, I know they're different endeavours and they come from different, um, in a way, starting at different points of the mental health continuum or different quadrants of the mental health continuum that you know uh but there's considerable overlap so it's now also about you know doing uh encouraging actions that then also promote flourishing pr mm. you know prevent or avert languishing um in in addition to you know the the prevention of uh you know mental disorders where we can cool yeah so i mean that's the perfect segue of where we wanted to go with this episode so i when i got in contact with steve and i I was basically saying like there's this this dual continuum model of mental health. We've talked about it a fair bit on some of the other episodes. Obviously, we talked with Corey Keys um, to kick off to kick off the whole show. Um, I thought we could go into a little bit of some of the theory that's come out of um, our research, um, and I thought it, it would be extremely boring basically if I just stood with a bunch of slides and presented that. I think that is not my strength to be engaging to a camera. Um, but instead, I thought we could use it as a bit of a tool for a conversation um, and, and that it could be basically a springboard to hear what this means from Stephen's perspective and from his work. Um, but just before we get into that, I thought, and also not to mention us describing slides and graphs and stuff is going to be interesting for the audio only listeners, but hey, we'll, we'll try our best. Um, your message is prevention is better than treatment, I guess. That is a... Or, or maybe, I don't know if you would disagree with that. Maybe better is not the right word, but more optimal, It's at least as desirable. good as, uh, you know, I mean, <clears throat> certainly, look, we're in a situation where, you know, uh, where we are fortunate in that there are some good treatments for a lot of mental health conditions, but by the same token, they're, they're imperfect. Um, you know, uh, not everyone uh, experiences full recovery and even people who do often experience recurrences. And... You know, there's an emotional drain to experiencing episodes of severe mental ill health. There's a, you know, financial strain. Um, mm -hmm. So ultimately, like any condition, if we can prevent it, it's probably better in the first place to, to prevent it from occurring, yeah. Yeah. Uh, even if we do have the tools to try to support people through to recovery. And, and I guess that's just my question before we get into the slides is why, you know, basically, do you ever come across someone who disagrees with that? that idea, I'm going to assume no. Um, I should let you have a 
I should let you answer that first. Yeah. Or, or let me finish the question. Sorry, sorry to jump in. But basically my point is I don't think you would find many that disagree with that statement, yet we don't seem to be seeing any change in that direction. Look, you're right. No one would, would disagree. Um, but I think it's really interesting um, that a lot of people, it still strikes them as, I never thought of that. You know, I never thought about the prevention of depression or the prevention of uh, anxiety disorders, eating disorders. I, I think we're, you know, in the physical health realm, we, we, we totally understand that. We all know that, you know, it's important to prevent the spread of COVID. You know, it's important to try to prevent road trauma. It's important to try to prevent uh, cardiovascular disease, you know, and, and cancers. Um, but for some reason, I think in, in the public and also the political mindset, you know, it's almost like, well, mental health conditions are different. They, they, they just sort of happen, right? And then you deal with them after they've happened. And they're sort of a bit sort of like, you know, double take, oh, okay, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe they're not inevitable. Actually, I never thought about the fact that maybe they actually could be prevented. So, you know, there is this sort of like, of course, support. Uh, but I think, you know, what we're dealing with is a sort of low level of, of well-being and prevention literacy mm. and therefore an uncertainty about, well, okay, so how would you do that? Um, um, you know, some scepticism, but, but, but it's also, uh, I had never thought about that, so tell me more, you know, how, do we, how would we approach this? Mm. Um, and that's when you can start to have the conversation and, you know, and, and then it is a question of trying to explain, you know, you know, what we know about the evolution of mental health conditions and risk and protective factors and how we can intervene in that chain, that causal chain to sort of try to avert um, those trajectories from occurring. Mm, interesting. And so where do you think you see that? Like, is that the sort of at the clinician level? Is it at the policy level? Um, because I think that the caricature, the, the bad caricature of when we talk about, um, you know, well-being, it's kind of like clinicians never thought about well-being before. And now we've come along and now we've told them to do it. And now they're doing it like it's obviously not that's not the case. We often find that most clinicians probably have an eye on well-being. They have an eye on prevention. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be something systematic. It seems to be at the level of the individual practitioner. Um, so where do you see that, you know, that kind of, um, that idea of like, I never thought of that? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, look, I, I think it's across the board. I think it, it, it is uh, amongst the general public. I, I think it's sort of amongst clinicians, but as you say, maybe to a lesser degree. And it's also amongst sort of decision makers, you know, bureaucrats and uh, and politicians, but again, I think that's changing. You know, I, I, if you if you look back in in Australia's mental health policy, the the concept of you know what was called promotion or you know promoting mental health or mental well-being and prevention appeared for the you know right at the first point of our national mental health strategy. Uh, mm. It was part of the first national mental health plan in 1992. So it's always been this idea that we should be doing this. Um, but the problem is it was never backed up by actual action uh, or, or, or funding. Um, and almost always, it was almost like tokenistic. We've got yeah. to say this, it's, you know, of course we want to promote mental health and prevent mental illness, who doesn't? But it was never turned into concrete action uh, along the way. And so first, second, uh, first national mental health plan, second, third, 
you know, for they all talked about promotion and prevention, and then in the fifth, it fell off the radar completely, which was almost like, well, really? at least you're being honest now. Uh, so, you know, uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, well, and we did have this this sort of heyday period around the turn of the the the, the millennium uh, two thousand. We had an actual national action plan for the uh, for promotion, prevention, and early intervention. But again, um, most of the energy then went on to early intervention. You know, that for me is the early detection of a threshold disorder, someone who has actually got. Uh, a clinical mental health condition and then how do we intervene as early as possible and provide mm. appropriate intensive comprehensive support so even after that plan which was a very detailed and comprehensive blueprint promotion and prevention really uh, didn't kick off it was early intervention that did so I think people have struggled because you know maybe there wasn't to be fair, enough research to back up some of the things that we wanted yep. to do. Yep. Um, I think, um, you know, we, we've, we've now had a couple of more decades of really good, helpful research that provides a better clarity around how we can get to where we want to get on these issues. Um, but I think it's also because, you know, we all know um, from the comments from the Productivity Commission, the Victorian Royal Commission, um, you know, there's this sense that the mental health care system is broken. And so, you know, governments obviously need to respond to people in the greatest need, you know, and you can't ignore someone who's suffering and, and, and needs help right here, right now for their mental health difficulties. And so we always seem to be, you know, trying to fix a broken system and we keep kicking promotion prevention down the road you know mm. we'll come to that we'll come to that mm. we've got to start here we've got to look after people who are struggling and that's okay but after 30 years you think well when's it going to come onto the radar again and and it's almost like you know i think it's a bit of a myth now that uh you know we're going to fix this mental health crisis in australia just by investing um in more mental health care services so Clearly, I'm not for a moment suggesting we don't need to pour more money into, you know, uh, psychological services, mental health care mm. services. Of course we do. But if we think that that's the, the, the only way forward and, and if we just do that a bit more and a bit better, suddenly everything's going to be hunky-dory. Yeah. We're just kidding ourselves. Yeah, it's it's like I think the first thing you learn in public health 101, I think. Um, I mean, that's going back a few years for me and I, and I probably wasn't really pay, paying that much attention, I think, at the time. But, you know, the 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 the, um, the cliff and are we putting fences yeah. at the top of the cliff or are we putting ambulances at the bottom? Exactly and, right. And no one, you know, no one disagrees. It's funny that you, you pick up something there, which is how competitive the space is. And so everyone is advocating, I think, correctly for what they need more of. And, and so somehow it's perceived as you say, I, I, I get the sense that when you say we need more prevention, the clinical space says, well, it, that better not come out of our budget. And I don't think you're suggesting that should, that should be the case, right? Like, Totally, and, 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 and that is the problem. You know, we've been as a sector undervalued, under-resourced, and it does create that sort of sense of competition or, you know, uh, but, you know, we've got a problem here. What about that? And, mm. you know, it, it's almost like, and it's not quite, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of caricature, you know, this is a bit of a caricature, but it's created this sense of, you know, we need to compete for the scraps. And so mm. clearly our approach is to say, look, 
let's work together on this and let's accept that what we need is this strong continuum you know, of approaches that start at the promotion of well-being, the prevention of mental ill health, and then go on to you know, early intervention for clinical disorders, re recovery support, suicide prevention. It's not one or the other, it's all of those things together that we yeah. need. Yeah. Um, and that is sort of, we also need to understand that we, we approach those things in slightly different way. Again, I go back to the physical health world analogy and there we're very comfortable with the notion that we do you know, health promotion slash public health and then we do health care, right? We try to do slip, slop, slap to prevent some, you know, skin cancer, but then we have dermatologists and plastic surgeons and oncologists treating melanoma and other skin cancers, right? We, we don't say it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we, we encourage people to eat healthily, exercise regularly, not smoke, but we all, you know, to prevent heart attacks and strokes. But we also have cardiologists putting stents in people and, and people are on, you know, uh, uh, anti-cholesterol drugs, etc. We don't pretend that it's one or the other, but in mental health, for some reason, I think we've we've tried to pretend that you know um, it's either or, or you can't have both. But what we really need is you know a two-pronged approach. The mental health promotion, and as a field of endeavour, I think is about promoting well-being, preventing mental ill health, raising people's mental uh, health and ill health literacy. And then you've got mental health care, which is the more traditional mm. GPs, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, mm. et cetera, et cetera, including now peer workers and, and psychosocial uh, support uh, services, you know, providing that well-being um, type of support. So I think I'm seeing a change. I'm definitely seeing a change across state governments. Um, they're now, I think, very aware of, of this issue that we can't just keep trying to plug holes in the damn wall. We need to start earlier and try to be proactive and keep people mentally healthy and well and prevent mental ill health. So Victoria, I think, is moving ahead very progressively on this issue. Western Australia is. But I know other states are not far behind. I think my concern is that the federal government um, is still a laggard. And, you know, if I'm going to be critical of any uh, tier of government, I would be critical of the federal government. They are simply just not accepting uh, this this logic and not really doing anything active about it and that for me is a big disappointment they should mm. be doing much better they should be leading a national approach to promotion and prevention but they're not yeah and I guess I'm just going back to your physical health analogy things like slip stop slap um, I'm not sure if uh, people from around the world would understand that one but that's one of our um, I think, I don't know, would people call that one of our most successful health promotion? Oh, definitely. Look, I think Australia has led the world in, in health promotion around, you know, the prevention of skin cancer. You know, so Slip Slop Slap is about putting on sunscreen, wearing clothes or protection from the UV light, you know, staying out of the sun, you know, at, at, at peak UV time. So um, every kindergarten, every school, every, you know, sports club in this country um, has implemented measures to try to uh, protect people from harmful UV exposure. You know, uh, that's a massive public health uh, victory, um, you know, for a country that, uh, you know, has so much sunshine, we need yeah. to protect our skin. Yeah. And, and so then I guess that's where I was going is something that's the model of success or something like the model of success. I assume that wasn't done at the state level, that was done at a federal, national level. Well, it's done in concert. I mean, the, there's, there's national leadership and, and, and state um, implementation. Okay. So, okay. Um, and, and, you know, this is one of these problems here in, in Australia as a federated country. 
who's responsible for what is always this big question. You know? um, and look, I think uh, mental health care is a shared responsibility between Commonwealth and state governments and territories. But likewise, I believe mental health promotion should be a shared responsibility. So I don't think, um, I mean, you know, take for example the, the, the focus on suicide prevention, which I think there's very strong parallels and you could potentially put part of suicide prevention in this mental health promotion space, uh, you know, as in the non-clinical care service delivery component. Mm -hmm. Now, the federal government is absolutely leading the way on suicide prevention. They've established a national suicide prevention office in the National uh, Mental Health Commission here in Australia. Um, but then every state and territory also has its own jurisdictional uh, suicide prevention plan and approach. Yeah. So that's a perfect example of, you know, uh, Commonwealth state cooperation on a particular issue. So I can't see that it shouldn't be the same sort of model for the promotion of mental well-being and the prevention of mental ill health. And we've got to stop trying to you know, say, oh, no, it's your responsibility. Oh, no, it's your responsibility because, you know, that's what happens in this country. Uh, the two top tiers of government keep handballing between each other and nothing gets done properly. Mm. Is it also a challenge as well that, as you say about the responsibility, that the responsibility of wellbeing doesn't, like, not only does it not lie at one level of government, it also doesn't, it doesn't sit comfortably within just one government department. That seems to be part of the issue as well. Absolutely, Matt. I, I think you're spot on there. And, and look, this is, you know, we're starting to get in some of the c complexities of this issue. So I'm not standing here pretending that we can promote everyone's well-being and we'll get 100% of the population to flourishing mm -hmm. overnight or that we can prevent every mental health condition and, you know, and, and put the incidence and the prevalence down to zero. You know, that's ridiculous. I mean, because we haven't done that for anything, you know, whether it's heart disease, strokes, cancers. But it doesn't mean that we can't work towards that and and the more we do the better we'll become uh, the more research we we in uh, dollars we invest the the more uh knowledge and and interventions we'll be able to create so i i, I think you know it, it's really just this this issue of needing to to make a bit of a start and 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 then learn as we go and build on you know um the evidence as it accumulates so uh, but I don't quite think I answered your question. Can you take me back to that one again? Sorry. No, just about... Um, no, I, I like the realistic thing because I think, firstly, we can be a little bit... Um, what would the word be? Like almost utopian or something, you know? Like if we just yeah. listen to me, if we just listen to me, man, we'd make a difference, you know? Um, the question was around um, um, the, the whole shared responsibility government. across yeah. the yeah across departments. Yeah, so, so what we know, you know, to, to overly simplify it is that you know, it, it's sort of almost like a, a balancing act between, you know, positive influences on mental well-being or protective factors and negative influences on people's mental well-being, you know, which we call risk mm. factors. And, you know, we've got to, as the old song says, you know, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, right? Now, easy to say, uh, a bit more complex to do, because obviously when it comes to our mental health compared to that, our physical you health, you know, to, there's, um, there's a lot more variables or a lot more factors that influence our mental well-being. For example, compared to, you know, our heart health, where it might be high blood pressure, cholesterol, you know, smoking, um, you know, for depression, you know, it's a whole host of things that can contribute to depression. So it is a much more complex exercise to sort of uh, try to modify or rebalance the various positive and negative protective mm. factor risk factors. And 
all of these factors sort of exist in, in different environments, in the home environment, in the, in the learning or school environment, in the workplace environment. So it, it can't be one organisation or, or, or one sector uh, or, or even one tier of government or even one department that can manage all of those various risk and protective factors. And so, you know, the, uh, the, the, the problem with uh, the promotion of mental wellbeing and the prevention of, uh, you know, mental ill health is that it does require a collective, joined up, whole of government, whole of community approach. And that's when politicians' head starts to spin because they, they like simple things, you know, they like to keep it simple. They like a program that is, you know, they can launch and is going to solve this problem. And they're getting better. I mean, I know I'm sounding very cr critical of the uh, uh, po political class um, and maybe I'm being unfair, but it, it feels to me that, you know, uh, we could solve this problem by taking a more joined up approach, but mm. politicians and departments tend to still work too much in their own little isolated silo. You know, yeah. education doesn't always talk to health. Health doesn't always talk to mental health. Mental health doesn't always talk to, you know, uh, environment, etc. So yeah. we need a collective um, whole of government, whole of community sort of approach if we're serious about the promotion of mental wellbeing and the prevention of mental illness, because at the end of the day, it is a complex uh, process and we need to be able to shift so many risk and protective factors. Uh, no one, you know, part of the system can do it on its own. Yeah, look, and I don't think you're being, I think you're being critical of the system itself, it, that it's just at the end of the day, it's structured in departments which are silos and the people within them don't have very many incentives to step out of those silos. Yeah, and I, look, you know, again, I think we're starting to see some glimmer of hope and, you know, we're, we're seeing some models emerge like, um, you know, wellbeing budgets where, you know, we're, we're seeing that that's about taking, again, collective government action. You know, every uh, portfolio, every department, you know, you set certain outcomes and then you say, how is this department, how is this uh, team, how is this entity going to contribute to that outcome? You know, and so... It's, it's a much better way of doing things because um, it's not, you know, handing responsibility to just one part of government and saying, all right, over to you guys, you're going to fix this. Um, and then they don't have the mechanisms to actually influence some of the other environments where, where change needs to happen. Mm. All right. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So I'm just thinking, let's, let's have a go at this slide thing. So I don't know, are you a sports fan? Uh, I'm an AFL fan, uh, and I know a little bit about other sports. So, okay, yes. who do you support? <laughs> uh, I, in the AFL, I support Essendon, uh, Essendon Bombers. Okay, very good. All right, so what I'm thinking is basically this, the structure of like a special comments commentator is kind <laughs> of what I'm thinking in my mind. So have right. that. You don't have to come up with the um, the one-liners so much, but. Um, I'm going to share this screen. So this is just like a sort of a standard presentation that that I've got. Um, hopefully you're seeing that. Yeah, it's on screen now. Cool, cool. So why don't we just sort of work our way through it? So what I, what I really wanted to get to was to talk a little bit about this, this dual continuum model um, because I think it's something that is gaining, gaining traction um, in, in Australia, at least. I think there are certain, certain areas uh, around the world that are, that are adopting it. And it's, and it's 
you know, it's it's obviously still a simplification. I think you'll see I've got some slide with some cartoon characters on there at one point. And if you're seeing a slide with cartoon characters, you know, it's probably still a simplification. Um, but, you know, it's, it's moving in the right direction. I think it's it's moving in the direction that... Um, that that is resonating uh, linking the promotion of well-being with the 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 treatment and the maintenance of, of mental illness so is that is that model you know would you agree with that so far look i i think there is uh the the dual continuum model i think um absolutely assists both with thinking about how do we promote mental well-being across the population and that includes for people who do maybe currently have uh, a diagnosis of some form of a mental health condition, mm-hmm. as well as the general population, and absolutely also um, helps for the prevention of mental ill health. It's just a good organising framework and a way of thinking about where we need to put our energy. Yeah, great. Okay, so like I say, just I'm going to sort of run through the slides. You can um, just chip in with any any special comments along the way, anything that kind of triggers in your mind or experiences, because I think you've got such a wealth of knowledge and a, and a bank of experience, Stephen, that I want to kind of see what this brings up for you um, and, and, and talk about it in the context of your work as well, things that you've had successes, because um, I think we haven't got to that just yet, but um, let's kick off. So, the, you know, the first slide here, I'm going to try and describe the slides roughly. Uh, we might give up halfway through and I'll just say go to YouTube and watch this thing, but um, basically, the first slide here is this idea of the burden of mental illness. So, um, Alexandrova, a uh, professor in the UK, has this kind of quote that I've seen, um, that good mental health is a universally valued outcome. So, that's that's the start point. You know, this is, this is valuable. I think the WHO says there is no health without mental health. You know, you have variations of this thing. This is really important, basically, full stop. The next is then we look at Australia, you know, 45% of Australians will experience a mental illness in their lifetime um, with something like one in five experiencing mental illness at any one time in Australia, most commonly depression and anxiety. So that's sort of 20%. Uh, But a recent report came out um, updating these figures sort of post-COVID. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Stephen? Look, yeah, the the most recent uh, robust data that we've got from the National Study of Mental Health and Wellbeing in Australia shows... Um, you know, an uptick in the prevalence of, of, of uh, common mental disorders, particularly amongst young people. In fact, you know, um, uh, the, over the, the period, and it was a fairly long period between the last national survey in 2007 and the most recent survey, there was a 50% increase in the prevalence of, you know, depression, anxiety, substance use conditions combined. And when you break it up, substance use conditions actually went down it was anxiety that went up considerably as well as depression Mm. so Mm. um you know there's various um issues there part of the 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 data collection was happening during the first uh, wave of covid um which may have distorted the data but as you know this looks back in the 12 months before um the interview with the the person you know doing the 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 diagnostic um schedule Mm. Um, so, you know, and I think other data uh, also reflects the same thing. There's been a trend towards an increase in mental ill health, particularly amongst youth um, and also self-harm and, and suicide. So yeah. very concerning upward trend, particularly amongst young people. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's the point, isn't it? That these statistics, are they're, they're damning enough as they are, but it seems to be getting worse. And mm. so I guess that's where we 
I think I started this podcast saying that we have a problem to fix basically and particularly the frightening prospect that you know these rates are highest in our youngest people is is a real concern absolutely um so next next i guess on the slide is this idea it's just just some comments from different um international groups around um around the world this idea that there's been a lack of progress in reducing the burden of mental illness and that's prompted calls for improved access to quality mental health care and assessment of mental disorders so that's really this comment that a lot more money is going into this um but like you say the ambulances and and the fence or i think i said that actually um despite the addition of ambulances which are important um that that um we're not seeing uh you know any reduction in the people who are falling off the cliff um yeah look uh i i i i think as you know we we um i mean two things just we we're trying to come up with a slightly different analogy because of unfortunately that sort of uh implication there with with self-harm and sure oh yeah yeah that's fair but uh the the point you're making is absolutely valid that um there's this growing awareness now that um you know despite increased investment and despite increased uptake uh, of service and increased service provision we're not necessarily it's called the mental health paradox We're, we're we're putting more money into the system and people are using services but we're not necessarily getting the, the falls in population prevalence that we'd mm. expect. Now, some people suggest, well, you, you're never going to get a drop in prevalence because mental health conditions are episodic and there'll always be someone you know, in the midst of an episode that they're chronic recurring relapsing conditions. But I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. And um, I, I, I think you know, what we're seeing is a, a failure to make inroads into incidents that is then you know, part of the problem that we never get on top of prevalence. So yeah. we need to you know, stop as many people developing these conditions in the first place. And, and you know, there's no doubt that that, that is a, a, a worthy and important ambition. But of course, you know, as we said before, you know, we can't prevent every you know, mental health condition from occurring. And so, of mm. course, we need to have high quality mental health care um, for those people who experience those challenges. I mean, we, we talk, the academics talk about, you know, three big or four big pre- gaps. You know, there's a prevention gap, there's an access gap, uh, there's a quality gap. Um, they, they tend to talk about those three gaps. I believe there's also just a, uh, uh, an innovation gap, you know, where mm-hmm. we're not producing better treatments. You know, we're, we're, we've got much of the same treatments that we've been using for, for decades and we haven't necessarily nailed how to provide better quality mental health care services. So I think we've got this sort of uh, research and qual- um, you know, innovation gap as well. Um, we just need to get better all round across mm. the whole continuum from wellbeing through to recovery support. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And um, I'll stop with that analogy, by the way. That was a good point. I hadn't considered that. Um, with, with and, and this is the other thing, I just a bit of nuance here as well, is that people hear this and I think they take that directly as a criticism of you're saying that our, our, our services don't work. And I don't think that's the point here, is it? Oh, no, no. The, look, uh, the individuals working in, in mental health care are such dedicated, hardworking, yeah. undervalued, under-resourced people here in Australia. You know, like I said, my career, most of my career has been doing that. And I, 
I continue to respect and admire and take my hat off to to people on the front line providing mental health care services. We're not saying that at all. It's mm. it's not something that people are doing badly. It's a system issue. It's a, we need to you know take the personal out of this. It's about you know looking at, at this from a objective uh, you know systems perspective and. I think you know we we, 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 we we need to find a solution at a, at a systems level rather than saying this person or that group or that profession isn't doing a good enough job because of course they are. Mm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Just important to clarify. Um, cool. And then so the last one here is this, um, this was a call from the US Burden of Disease Collaborators in 2018 saying that uh, we w- they were calling for programs to prevent mental disorders and promote mental health and i and i always hold on to this quote because it's it's the thing that is the fundamental distinction that i think we haven't nailed just yet what is preventing mental disorder and what is promoting mental health and hopefully that's where i think that you'll continue is the next step in the line of progression to to start to clarify that distinction so next slide um you know, this is again, this is kind of the, the caricature of traditional psychology. I've got the little um, uh, apostrophes there. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of the criticism of the clinical psychology to, to date, or this is kind of, I guess, more around the 2000s when positive psychology was really sort of becoming formalized. Um, this idea of, you know, it's focused on what goes wrong with people. It's about identifying and addressing symptoms of disorder and mental illness. Like we've already said a couple of times, that's not all that our clinical health services are focused on. Definitely not, but that's kind of the the, the caricature, I guess, of it. Um, Wood and Tarry in 2010 saying that the clinical field has been primarily focused on the assessment and management of dysfunction and, and distress. I think that's probably a more fair way to say it uh, in terms of like primarily focused. Um, but there has been this recently renewed emphasis on pos- positive functioning and understanding when people are at their best. And that's about reorienting research and practice towards the positive aspects of mental health or mental well-being. Um, and just a caveat there that I know, um, hopefully I'll get into it at some point. Um, I've got someone in mind who I think can speak to this, this idea that actually the original, the earliest clinical psychologists were all about, um, you know, positive functioning and, and, and um, like living best lives, that kind of thing. So yeah, probably, look- maybe we lost our way along the way. Sorry, Stephen. Yeah, no, look, I, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, as, as you've no doubt gathered, I, I'm, I'm definitely uh, a believer in, uh, you know, uh, an eclectic uh, approach uh, that we value different disciplines and, and uh, different contributions to understanding this issue because it is very complex. But I don't think anyone's, you know, it's 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 not either or basically all of yeah. you know we've got a lot of uh, understanding um, and we need to be able to integrate that understanding rather than trying to preference or privilege one way of looking at things mm. and mm. I think you're right um, there has been this tendency to focus more on biomedical type models which are about disease and dysfunction and therefore diagnosis and treatment. Um, but you know, a lot of people have been their lives have been saved by effective uh, treatment of bipolar disorder or you know um, schizophrenia, etc., depression. Um, but yes, I think at the moment we've got a bit of tunnel vision and yeah. we we're only concentrating at the ill health end of the spectrum um, and thinking that you know, it, obviously the, the 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 common thing is not recognizing that the absence of mental illness does not equal the presence of mental well-being yeah, and yeah. you know i mean that's the point um 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's that funny. It's that scar- scarcity mindset, isn't it? That um, totally. There's only this tiny bucket that we're all competing for, and it's it's surprisingly hard to have that narrative of, you know, everything that's out there right now is useful. It is mm. effective. Um, we need more, but the more, it it's it's a funny way to get across people's mind of like the call to say we need more is not to denigrate what's there already. Correct. And, 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 you know, when we do our advocacy, we make it very clear that what we're calling for is greater investment in, in mental health all round. And, you know, um, you know, one metric that's commonly used here in Australia is what percentage of the overall health budget does mental health um, funding get? And it's at the moment hovering around the low 7% mm. mark. Um, Whereas, you know, the, 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 the burden of disease studies tells us that, you know, mental ill health, you know, ha- carries at least 12% of the, the burden of, you know, injury, uh, you know, disability and mortality. So our idea is, well, let's increase the, the let's grow the pie for everyone. You mm. know, we believe that, you know, the mental health budget should, should be expanded to at least 10%, uh, you know, of the health budget rather than 7 but then what we're saying is we need to slice that pie up and, and give some to each of the segments of the, the continuum. And all we're asking for in terms of promotion and prevention is 5% of that mental health budget. So uh, at the moment, we get less than 1% of the mental health budget to do promotion yeah. prevention okay. work. So of the 7%, 1% of the 7% goes to prevention. Correct, yeah. Oh, so Someone can do the maths of that. Yeah. So look, what we're saying is uh, uh, mental health as a as a sector, as an area from top to bottom, from well-being to recovery support is underfunded mm. uh, compared to the importance of, you know, mental, good mental health in our lives and the impacts of poor mental health and mental illness in our lives. So governments just need to understand it's way more important than they are recognizing um, they've got no trouble pouring money into cancer and heart disease and I'm not questioning that uh, but they have a real problem seemingly pouring money into mental health mm. and by mental health I mean the whole spectrum from well-being through to uh, mental ill health so um, it's just an undervalued area full stop and then as you say then that that scarcity creates competition and no, we need that money here. You don't need it there, or that's not going to work. This is going to work, or we deserve it more than you do. You know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So we, you're sort of calling for a a five percent, uh, sorry, a fivefold increase in prevention funding, but within the context of what you're asking for for the entire mental health system, that's that's nothing compared to what you think needs yeah. to be expanded for the services. Exactly. You you just grow the overall pie so that we're we're not got this scarcity. Yeah. Uh, and then you can start to more, um, you know, uh, uh, ef- efficiently and and reasonably rebalance, you know, the, the the funding that then goes to the different parts of the continuum. But you know, unless you grow the pie in the first place, um, you're still not going to make any headway. So, yeah. Yeah. first of all, grow the proportion of funding uh, relative to the overall health budget that mental health gets and then divide it up more equitably, more rationally in terms of, you know, um, upstream as well as downstream. Mm. Mm. All right, interesting. That was good. I didn't know about that. All right, cool. So this is kind of the, um, this is a, 
what do we call this? I guess this is this is the question that we're sort of trying to deal with is the relationship between mental health and mental illness. And so this comes from a quote in uh, 1951 by Eaton in uh, in the book The Assessment of Mental Health. This idea that mental health merges imperceptibly and gradually, like the colors of a spectrum, into mental illness. And uh, this has been, the, I guess, the predominant um, structure of our healthcare system. I guess in many ways, hasn't it? That you sort of like you're healthy until you meet some point and now you're not anymore um, and now you've got a mental illness and we have services for that uh, you know issues with access and and stuff you know not notwithstanding um, and this is kind of the thing that we're really pushing against with the dual continual model um, but I think just to clarify what we actually mean when we when we're talking about you know the relationship between illness and health is kind of to start with some sort of almost philosophical understanding of the relationship, the potential relationships between positive and negative. So this is something from um, James Powelski uh, at UPenn, uh, which I found really, really useful um, during my thesis, this idea that there are basically three options. Uh, I, I guess I'm still simplifying this, right? But there are three options of how positive can be related to negative, just in general. And we're obviously making the analogy of positive being well-being, negative being uh, mental illness you know negative is a bad word positive is a bad word but let's just sort of stick with it for now so the option one is that positive is merely the absence of the negative um, and that's something like the traditional thing if, if you have no symptoms of a mental illness then you must be mentally well um, so on a number line which is on the screen for those of you who can't see uh, you know that might be construed as like you know thinking of negative 10 is the presence of of a mental illness um whereas zero is um you know is is no mental illness therefore healthy uh, i know um, my words aren't lining up exactly to the slides but that's okay um the second is then you know and the example here i think is something like you know the, the relationship between heat and cold so from from you know from physics year 10 physics or something like that uh the idea it was a revelation to me i think that cold doesn't exist it's merely the absence of heat that's kind of that's that option uh, i don't know whether that was surprising to other people or not but it surprised me uh option two is that both positive and negative both that they both exist um and that they they reflect polar opposites of the same spectrum so this is that idea of extending the number line which is i think exactly how martin seligman spoke about it when he was forming um, some of the, the big papers of positive psychology in the early years. This idea of we have been focusing from negative 10 to zero, um, but that's not where the number line stops. You could actually be going now into the, the positive 10, which would be that presence of well-being. Um, there are a couple of issues with that, which we'll get into in a second. But then the third option is this idea of, of well-being and mental illness or positive and negative as distinct dimensions. So these are then reflecting two separate continua. Um, which is which we see on the next slide. So, any comments um, so far? Special commentator, Stephen. Uh, no, look, I think that that's a good summary of um, the traditions and and you know the way we've been thinking about this relationship between you know uh, positive mental health or mental well-being and mental illness or mental ill health or you know uh, that end of the spectrum. Um, yeah, the dichotomous model, um, the you know, single continuum model in, in its various forms. Um, probably fewer people necessarily now um, adopt the dichotomous, it's either yeah. or. Yeah. Um, and 
the single continuum spectrum model seems to be gaining more traction, but mm -hmm. as we will see, uh, it's not necessarily uh, the most useful or accurate. Yeah, great. I no, appreciate that. Yeah, I, just, I don't know why this popped into my head. I've just got to say it. But in Australia, we call the special commentators in, I think it's only in footy, um, boundary riders, which is such a weird, when you think about it, I guess it's such a weird name because they stand on the boundary of the pitch. and. That's right. They're just sitting outside the field to play on the boundary line, as we call it. Uh, and they comment from there. So they're boundary riders. Yeah, it's just so weird. Uh, anyway, whatever. Um, all right, cool. So then, so then this is the sort of the extension of that third option of, you know, positive and negative as distinct dimensions. This is then this idea of the dual continuum model of mental health. So under this, um, under this model, this is some stuff I pulled from Heron and Trent in 2000. They're sort of suggesting that, you know, when you think about these things separately, uh, they weren't necessarily talking about the dual continuum model, but they were coming from this perspective of if you thought about illness and health separately, you have these potential benefits. The first is that each concept can be described independently of one another and could be therefore tested and measured independently. Um, interesting, I, I think they took that from a privacy perspective, which was, you know, if you were to measure well-being, you don't necessarily then have to disclose mm. anything to do with mental illness, um, which, which I just was an interesting point. I think there are lots of still many professions where, you know, mental illness is stigmatized. Um, um, almost, almost like officially stigmatized in a sense, like when you think about uh, judges and, and GPs and doctors and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so that, you know, there was a bit of a, a protection there, but I digress. Um, the next was this idea that, you know, under this assumption, it allows for the possibility that individuals can be mentally healthy and mentally ill at the same time. And Cachopo and Berenson, um, which is another paper which we'll go into a little bit, which was really um, influential for me, talked about this issue of neutrality. And so what they were sort of basically suggesting, if we go back a slide and we think about that single continuum from negative 10 to zero and positive 10, they're basically saying well, you, you, under this assumption or under this model, we don't know what the zero point means, that neutrality point. It either means you have no negative and no positive, but it also could mean that you have equal negative and equal positive. And we can't tell the difference between those two things. So it kind of masks this potential relationship, which, which I think now we are seeing, um, particularly, particularly for, as you said before, you know, chronic or recurrent mental illness or, or permanent mental illness. Um, there is a potential for improvements in well-being that you wouldn't necessarily understand. Um, it's kind of masked by that that issue of neutrality. Uh, oh, I actually had the slim thing about it, but disclosing information about mental health, whatever, I should have read my own slides. That's okay. Um, we'll skip past that one. Um, but then there was this idea that um, this model, it provides the potential for new avenues for proactive rather than reactive mental health system design um, in mental health promotion. So. Less it, it could potentially mean that we're less reliant on the labor-intensive downstream interventions um, and therefore allows for this promotion to be more widely applied. Um, oh, sorry, Stephen. Yeah, look, I, 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 I think also where, and we'll be talking about this more with, with, with some of the next slides, but um, the, the, the thing that, you know, uh, I think is important to get across is also that you know, mental health as, you know, let's call it an umbrella concept um, is 
we all experience mental, you know, a level of mental health or mental health in some form, right? So, whereas the, the, the term now, in particular in Australia, mental health has more or less just become a, 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 a low stigma synonym for mental illness. People don't mm -hmm. want to use the word mental disorders, mental illness, because they think that carries stigma, and it does. Uh, but then they're talking about mental health, but that's confused everything because it now is like equating mental health <laughs> as a as a broad concept of mm. uh, you know with with a narrow concept of of mental ill health or or mental illness. So, because the thing is, we need to help the whole of the community understand if we all have uh, mental health, then we all benefit from initiatives that are designed to promote our mental uh, health, protect our mental health, or help us recover from mental ill health. And it sort of stops us going, um, tuning off and saying, oh, that's a discussion for those people over there with depression, anxiety, that's not mm. for me, I don't have those conditions, I don't need to hear about this, I don't need to engage with this. No, yes you do, because it's like physical health, you know. Yes. We all have a level of physical health. It's not just people with diabetes or, or heart disease that need to talk about healthy lifestyles or, you know, uh, not smoking. It's, it's all, every single one of us. So mm. I, th I think this starts to democratise uh, the concept and help people realise that this is part of the human experience, you know. Yeah, we, 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 we all have a stake in this and we've got to stop othering mental health as if it's just about depression, anxiety, or conditions that that group of people have and I don't have, so mm. this is not relevant to me. Mm. It absolutely is relevant to every single human on the planet, and that's why our, our, we, we need to think beyond just a simplistic either-or model. Yeah, perfect, I love it. And then, so this is my, uh, just as a side note, I think maybe we've labored this point a lot, but it's so interesting to me that when you use the physical health analogy, it makes perfect sense. Like the, the, um, the difference between how we, like the, the average person on the street thinks about physical health versus their mental health is just so different. Very different. And it's it, like, it, there's no one out there that would say it's not a, a good idea to stay uh, uh, physically fit and healthy and well, you mm. know, and, and almost everyone does something in their day to look after their physical health. Mm. Um, uh, now, a lot of people are doing stuff to look after their mental health, but they don't even realise uh, uh, that, that, that that's the connection. Um, so we have to make what's uh, implicit explicit and, and um, help people to, to join the dots. And, you know, in some ways, the physical health model, um, it's not perfect, but, but at least it's a point of reference that people are familiar with uh, that I think we can leverage for these sorts of conversations. Yeah, perfect. Um, and then this is my this is the, the this last point here is um, the bit that's really exciting to me I guess and and really opened my eyes I think again I got it from the Kachopo and Berenson, um that this idea of thinking about mental health this way allows us to identify unique antecedents and predictors and I think this is the bit again a little bit like that issue of neutrality um, the zero point. By, by adopting this kind of, we, we call that the bipolar model, so that, um, that op option two that we just discussed, that sort of negative 10 to positive 10, you're masking an understanding of um, what are the things that promote well-being, um, which may potentially be unique, 
uh, compared to those that reduce distress. So in another way, the things that make you happy may not necessarily equally make you less sad. Again, that's a that's a oversimplica- oversimplification, but it's that idea that we there may be things, and I think there are a couple of papers that have investigated this and shown that there are things that more uniquely affect one over the other. But because we've thought about it as a bipolar model, um, we've just overlooked that opportunity. And so if we go all the way back um, to that call from the US Burden of Disease collaborators, that idea of programs to prevent mental disorders and pr- to promote mental health, we don't really know which does what um, at this point. And I, and I personally would put that down to this idea of um, us not having had the sort of the theoretical opportunity to identify those u- unique antecedents and predictors. And, and again, going back to your physical health, we all know that the things that promote health are not necessarily the things that, um, that reduce the symptoms of disease. I mean, often they are overlapping, but sometimes they're not. And it's that nuance, I think, that's really useful. Yeah, for sure. I think it is exactly that. The nuance um, is, is very important. Um, you know, as you say, uh, some things that we do will assist with both promoting mental well-being, reducing distress. But as you say, uh, other things are probably more unique to one or other aspiration. Mm. Mm. All right. And so the, the diagram that you see on the slide is kind of like your old uh, X and Y math diagram. I'm going back again to year 10, year 10 for some reason today. Uh, or probably hopefully earlier, I think you should know about that. But that idea of like, you know, you have one axis, which is your level of distress and one axis, which is your level of well-being. And that's more commonly um, uh, depicted as you see on the screen now. So kind of like, it's, it's obviously the same graph, but it's not meeting at that sort of intersection of zero. They're crossing over. And this is how we often see the dual continuum of mental health um, uh, depicted. So you have that... that um, uh, one axis saying, you know, maximal psychological distress, absence of psychological distress, or, you know, I'm using these as synonyms of mental ill health or a diagnosis of mental illness, and then the other axis of maximal or optimal well-being and the absence of mental well-being. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is the, um, um, and, you know, uh, same way, but but um, as we'll see, you know, it, it, it breaks... Um, uh, the population up into, you know, potentially into quadrants that we can allocate people uh, to where they sit on, on the X axis and the Y axis. Mm. Um, but basically, yeah, the concept is that uh, we, we can vary at any given point in time, each and all of us will have a certain level of mental well-being from low to moderate to high um, and a certain level of mental ill health from maybe no symptoms uh, you know, mild symptoms, moderate, severe symptoms. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we can, we need to sort of understand where we sit on both of those spectra uh, to be able to get a, a, a proper gauge of, you know, our overall mental health. Yeah, exactly. And then that idea that, you know, obviously mental well-being is not one thing and distress is not one thing there are various aspects that inform each of these things so that's where i say it's still a simplification in the sense of you know it's not really like i've got a score out of 10 for one and a score out of 10 out of the other there are multiple dimensions um, of each of these things um and that's probably the next level of understanding how do these various dimensions interact with each other but like you know at a at a more um general level i think that that that's yeah this is an aggregate uh, of the 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 total of the various sub dimensions that you're presenting yeah absolutely 
And so I'll, I'll bring up, I'm going to skip around with my sides a little bit. This is something that I used uh, for a competition that's called the three minute thesis, where you have to describe your PhD thesis in just three minutes and you get one slide, no animations. It's a really great challenge. I think it actually started in Queensland and now it's a worldwide phenomena, um, phenomenon. And it's just such a great challenge for students to, to you know, basically they've, they've been thinking too hard about this problem. They can't, they've become verbose. Uh, how can you narrow it down to three minutes? Anyway, this is a slide that I was using. It's got the dual continuum, obviously, and it's got those four quadrants that you spoke about. And I kind of thought to get this across in three minutes, let's kind of go with these cartoon characters. Um, it's, you know, obviously, again, like I say, if, you, if you're looking at Simpsons characters, you're not looking at a, <laughs> <laughs> the most rigorously defined scientific thing of, of all time. But um, this is kind of where we go. And, and I'd like to hear sort of how you, th how you, how you um, think about your work in this context. So just quickly for those who can't see it, the, you know, when you think about if you have an access of, of these quadrants of high and low well-being, high and low mental illness symptoms, again, I, I'm going to stop saying this now, but this is an oversimplification. It's not that it's true that there are these four groups of people. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a, a, a diagram. You know, we've got Bugs Bunny who's sitting pretty. He's got high level of well-being with no mental illness. That's kind of the optimal state. We've got old Gil from The Simpsons, who, for those of you who remember this guy, it's like low level of well-being who wouldn't be diagnosed with a mental illness um, sort of yet. And and that's kind of, you know, the guy who's just uh, life's not going well. Uh, Corey Keyes talks about this as the, the languishing group, the feeling of blah. Um, we've got Eeyore, who, um, you know, is someone who has a low level of well-being and, um, you know, the presence of a mental illness. And then this is the hardest character to find. And it's, it's, it's not, it's just because we don't talk about this group of people basically, but someone like, I've got SpongeBob here in the top corner who has a high level of well-being, and, you know, the presence of a mental illness, um, you know, maybe sorry, going into the mania sort of thing, but it's, <laughs> it's a character that we just don't, um, we don't really demonstrate because it's, this, it's, a, it's a bit of an invisible subgroup, isn't it? Yeah, look, uh, and I, I was wondering what Sponge, SpongeBob, uh, why you chose SpongeBob for that. But absolutely, this is a a, a very um, you know interesting part of the the, the quadrant, and um, we, you know clinicians will be able to, and, and people we've lived in the V experience will definitely be able to identify uh, you know themselves or people they know on this quadrant. I mean. Absolutely, there are you know certain mental health conditions that are you know relapsing, remitting, or have persistent symptoms, and then you could fall into the trap of saying, well, that person is you know mentally unhealthy. Well, but they're not. <laughs> you know, they may have uh, some ongoing symptoms of uh, you know uh, generalized anxiety disorder or uh, some dysthymia from you know depression or. Uh, you know, uh, even persistent auditory hallucinations from uh, schizophrenia. But that does not mean that they cannot experience good emotional, good social, good psychological well-being. Mm. And, you know, the data shows that there actually are people in that category. Um, and so we, you know, this is very much aligned to the concept of recovery, that it's not all about symptom remission. It's about being able to re-engage with, with your, your community, your, you know, social and economic participation, you know, uh, have those social connections, have uh, a focus, meaning and purpose, uh, something to do in life, 
And if you've got those, well, you've got a certain level of mental well-being, even though it might be um, impacted somewhat by uh, the symptoms or the, the, the difficulties you may be experiencing from you know, a mental health condition that you got, that you have, um, some of which might be you know, heavily genetically sort of influenced. So um, this is a great um, you know, part of this model in that it provides a certain level of uh, hope, but also a certain um, uh, re-emphasis on what we need to provide at the service level um, you know, for people who may have more enduring or persistent symptoms of mental ill health. Mm. It's not just about uh, medications and, and CBT. There's other things we can offer uh, that are going to improve people's uh, mental well-being, quality of life, call it what you will, even if you can't necessarily, you know, cure that condition or reduce all the symptoms of distress and, and disability that are associated with it. Mm. Yeah, and so like you know, in our work, I think we particularly are really focused on the old gills of the world. Um, so this is the people who we we often have like a little ninja emoji um, that pops up next to the old gill there because this is the group of people who sort of fly under the the radar of our health services. That's how we sort of describe it. That because we're not assessing well being, we often don't see this group of people because they don't they don't ever meet a clinical threshold, um, or you know until they do. But there's a few longitudinal studies from around the world showing that you know this group of people are up to eight times more likely to develop a mental illness in the future, and so and we just don't really have much for them at the moment. Yeah, that's right because they're not a group that we 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 you know uh, you know some terminology would say oh, well you know this is subclinical mental illness you know you you've got a sub threshold condition but it's still mental illness but I think it's it's a different experience again. Um, you know, uh, I, I think, um, look, I live in, in, in Melbourne, in Victoria, and as most people would know, we were the most locked down city uh, over the sort of the, the 2020, 2021 sort of COVID period. And you could see as a community, because we had so many of our uh, uh, protective factors stripped away from us, our ability to connect with others, our ability to go out and, you know, pursue our livelihoods, um, um, you know, um, connect with others, etc. But, um, you know, I don't think many people would have necessarily, you know, suggested they were experiencing depression or anxiety or a formal mental health condition, but they were certainly in that blah category. <laughs> There's mm. certainly that feeling like, you know, we were in a rut, um, we had suboptimal mental well-being, but we may not probably, and we a lot of people didn't necessarily have you know, a diagnosable mental health condition. Some did. Um, and so I think it made people realise, I think the penny did drop for a lot of people that actually, you know, we do have a level of mental wellbeing and our mental wellbeing does matter. And actually it's pretty fragile. And if we don't look after it, if we don't have the right sort of protective factors around us, it can actually suffer. And there wasn't really a lot for people who were languishing out there. I mean, yes, we tried to beef up our mental health care services for people in the bottom left quadrant. Great. But there was very little on offer for the people in the languishing group to get them back up to the to the flourishing, um, you know, optimal mental health end of the spectrum. So they are definitely uh, uh, an ignored um, part of the spectrum. Mm. And so, I mean, I had some more slides, but I think I think we can just stay with this one really to just talk about the rest of it in in the context of these four characters just to sort of make it a little bit more uh palatable 
if you look at this this uh, diagram, I guess again I, I'm making you look at four cartoon characters. But what what of the work that you are advocating for? What do you want? What do you want to see? Well, so it, I think this gives us a goal, right? It, it, you know, what is the whole point of mental health policy? You know, you 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 can either decide, all right, well, mental health policy is 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 really only about you know, supporting people who are experiencing, you know, mental health challenges, that's our only obligation. So we're going to support the people in the bottom left quadrant. That's all we need to do. But if we take a more global, uh, comprehensive, holistic approach to mental health policy, we say, no, actually, what we're trying to do is to get as many people as possible, as close to 100% of the population into the top right quadrant. Mm -hmm. So not only do we need to... um, uh, you know, well, we need to first and foremost promote mental well-being. You know, yeah. uh, as yeah. an independent uh, concept construct in its own right. How do we get people to experience optimal or high levels of mental well-being? But of course, then we need to also try to diminish or, or prevent uh, the occurrence of mental ill health or diminish its impact. You know, the the severity of the condition, um, and that then gives us two things we need to do, not just one. And Mm. so it's about then taking a whole of population perspective and saying, how do we optimise everyone's mental wellbeing uh, whilst at the same time also supporting people experiencing mental health challenges through their recovery journey, either up to the top left uh, quadrant uh, or to the top right quadrant, depending on what we can successfully achieve. I'm going to make you say the characters' names as well, so the people that aren't, uh, that aren't watching this. So we need more Bugs Bunnies <laughs> hanging around, people who are chill and, uh, you know, have uh, leaving fulfilling and contributing lives, uh, high social, emotional, uh, psychological well-being, uh, and we've got to support people who are in that Eeyore quadrant uh, to either, you know, experience reductions of mental ill health symptoms and move up to the SpongeBob. SpongeBob, yeah, yep. Yep. Uh, quadrant, uh, um, or better yet, from the SpongeBob co- quadrant to the Bugs Bunny quadrant, yeah. and we also have to help uh, people in Old Gill. I mean, uh, Old Gill is suffering. You know, he he is not necessarily in a good place. Uh, you know, psychologically, emotionally, socially, um, but he's often ignored. He, he's overlooked. He's just said to be in a rut, you know, the worried well, something, you know, derogatory, but his suffering is not acknowledged. And we also need to help uh, the gills of, of this world move up uh, to the Bugs Bunny quadrant if uh, we're using that analogy. Yeah, and sorry to make you, <laughs> to, to uh, drag you down to my level of talking about cartoon characters. Um, but yeah, no, that, I mean, that's exactly right. And that's that's the picture here, isn't it? So. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, having an episode in the future with Chiara uh, Rini, who's in uh, I can't I can't remember actually if it's Rioni or Ruini. I'm sorry, Chiara, but I'll get that right. She's in Italy. She's a clinical psychologist who's worked with um, Dr. Fava, and they've really like you know in this in our cartoon character world, they're really focused on how do we turn uh, eels into SpongeBob's. Basically, that idea of how can we promote well-being as it's a, as a valuable end in its own right for those with a diagnosed mental illness, um, and I think and that is that does become an avenue for recovery in the future, um, and and I think it's like you said it's a it's a valuable um, 
I mean, it's valuable in its own right, basically, because I think you'd rather be... I mean, we can even... I sort of toyed around with having Eeyore in both quadrants, but Eeyore with, like, you know, Winnie the Pooh and everyone else around him, because some people do use that as a nice example or an analogy of, you know having a bunch of friends maintaining you know meaningful relationships being supported by those around you despite the presence of a mental illness um you know kind of kind of could have been both but that idea of um for those for whom uh recovery is possible you know like clinical recovery um you know that idea of at least Chiara's uh work indicates this idea of pushing um you know eels up into the spongebob world and then eventually becoming you know uh, somewhere like a like a bugs bunny um but for those for for whom recovery is not possible like in the idea of a, a clinical recovery so in a, you know having a not being diagnosed with this thing anymore um it's just a more optimal place to be basically like it's a it's a better uh, and they call that that idea of personal recovery that's right exactly and and personal recovery um is different from clinical recovery in in many ways but it's self-defined it 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 but it is also about um, you know your life as a whole, um, and um, you know not your your condition or your illness. Um, so you know, um, I, I I think what we're seeing, for example, you know after the Royal Commission here in Victoria, there was a subtle but very important name change. You know, the Royal Commission said one of the first things they wanted to see was to change the wording from the mental health system. To the mental health and well-being system, mm. and that sort of subtle change says, "All right, well, okay, we're, we're you know, by mental health they really meant mental ill health, you know, distress system, uh, to a, a mental distress and well-being system." So it, it it suddenly adopts that language of we have to focus on both. Now I think um, services are still trying to unpack and understand what the implications of that are, but it's it's almost like taking the dual continuum model and applying it at the at the at the service level and saying you, it's not enough to reduce people's distress you know through through you know uh, pharmacological interventions or or, or targeted uh, psych, sorry yeah so pharmacological and psychological there's there's something else that needs to be added to the mix and these are these sort of well-being supports and as you know they revolve around things like you know, self-care, social connectedness, social and economic participation, you know, the other things uh, that are about your life as a whole. And these new service structures that are supposed to be evolving in Victoria called local mental health and wellbeing services uh, have to put equal weight on the wellbeing side of the equation as the distress reduction side mm. of the equation. Mm. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they evolve and, and how they incorporate this sort of logic um, into the work they do, because um, unfortunately, the old-fashioned system has been dominated by um, case management, medication. Um, you know, some people get psychological therapy type of model, um, and that's why they're experiencing incomplete recovery. They're getting maybe symptom recovery, but not personal recovery. Mm. Yeah, and and obviously, then this applies broader than just. Um you know the sort of the treatment world or the intervention world. This also applies um, at the at the um, socio demographic level as well. So the environment around the people, so you know, to oh. housing, transport, everything else, right? Totally. So so this is the the thing. You know the the this is a blueprint for whole of population. Um, you know interventions. The 
the working with individuals, um, teaching them the skills to, to support and protect their own mental health and well-being, but also changing environments around them, whether that's mm. family environments, school environments, workplace environments, or the broader social and economic environments. We have to act at multiple levels to, to get everyone into the Bugs Bunny sort of top end of the spectrum. It's not one-to-one -one stuff is not uh, on itself enough. We, we have to put in place certain programs and, 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 and change certain public policies mm. um, to support people's mental health and well-being. Um, and so, but you can then, so you can apply this model both at the population level, but you can also apply this model at the individual and, you know, level for for people who who may have a diagnosed condition so it's got great utility to guide intervention both for one-on-one -on -one type of work as well as whole the population type of work mm. fantastic all right so i had some i'm just going to go through them quickly just to show people that i had more serious looking slides i did actually have them but uh i don't know i'm not that serious of a guy sometimes but i think this has done a great job um i'm just thinking what did what did we miss on these slides the idea for me, the big implication here is that we need to be assessing mental well-being as well as levels of, of distress, um, because if you're only measuring one or the other, you're only looking at one of these axes, and so you've lost really valuable information. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what, what we need to do is, is change our, our thinking and the way we engage people um, and the way we, we conduct our assessments, you know, as you say. And, you know, when someone's coming to you because of distress, uh, of course you need to, uh, you know, understand that the, 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 the level of distress, the level of risk associated with that distress. But you're right, you're only getting part of the picture if you, mm. if you just measure K10 scores or, you know, um, you know the DAS21, you know, stress, anxiety, depression. You, you need to measure mental well-being as an independent construct in its own right because that will both guide uh, um, you know, intervention. But you also, I think, need to assess for, you know, and this is what we used to do in you know, uh, mental health uh, psychiatric formulations, right? It wasn't just about diagnosis, it was about understanding the person, you know, their, their life, their experiences, you know, the, 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 the so-called you know, uh, predisposing, precipitating, protective factors. And we need to better assess um, people's life circumstances and what are the risk and protective factors that have brought them into this, into this, through this, this gateway into a clinical service. Um, because uh, we can also then help them manage those those risk factors that might be contributing to their to their problem, whether that's financial difficulties, whether that's housing difficulties, whether that's relationship difficulties. At the same time that we're trying to optimise mental well-being and reduce mental distress. Mm. Um, so a comprehensive assessment requires an assessment of well-being, distress and risk and protective factors. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So I'll stop sharing now. Great, Stephen, thank you very much. You, you, um, you, just a last question, I guess. You have set yourself up in a really interesting position because you're independent um, and you sort of, I don't know if you would call yourself this, but like in a sense, you've, you've got nothing to lose in a way. You're, you're out there on a mission um, and you don't have, uh, I guess, um, any overarching things imposing uh, or getting in the way of, of that mission. And I think that's a really unique place to be. I think it's extremely uncommon. Um, what, the last question, I guess, is what are you most hopeful for? You know, we're talking about, we've, we've, we've talked about a lot of things that we would like to see in the world. What do you think is most immediate or, or, or the best chance? 
Yeah, look, um, great question. And look, you're right. I mean, I, I think when we first set up, we, we, we did have this idea that we would be one of the players offering, you know, well-being and prevention programs to the public. Um, but we've decided to maybe pull out of that space because I think there are a lot of great people doing great work like, you know, yourselves um, on this. So, yeah, we do want to play more that strategic influencer uh, mm. advocate sort of role like a quasi peak body for this concept of mental health promotion, you know, illness prevention. Um, so what am I hopeful about? Well, I, I am an eternal optimist and I do think we're starting to uh, see a change in the language and a change in the way we're thinking about this. And I think the dual continuum model has actually helped quite a lot um, to, to change people's thinking about that. So I think we're, we're getting away, we're trying to break down this either or, let's stop competing, let's work on this together, you do your thing, we'll do our thing, let's see where we can collaborate and integrate, um, uh, but at least don't compete. And I think we're starting to see some changes. Um, you know, we work with um, clinical service people as well as um, mental health promotion people and we've been able to bring them together and they collaborate and cooperate. And I think as we've seen in Victoria, this concept of mental health and well-being has sort of, mm. um, you know, started to influence mental health care services. We're seeing a similar thing in Queensland. And I think, as I said, you know, we're also starting to see promotion and prevention get back on the, the political radar, um, albeit still just at a state level uh, rather than a national level. So, you know, um, and I think we're seeing continued great research. We're, we're understanding these issues better. We're, uh, you know... Where we're at now is just, we just have to start the journey. Like you'll never get to your destination if you don't get in the car or the bus or the tram or the whatever it is, actually, and start the journey. And then once you're there, you'll find your way. You'll get there eventually. It might take a little bit of time and, you know, whatever. But at the moment, it felt like we weren't even bothering, you know, doing anything about this. Well, at least we're now in the car, right? We've moved beyond pre-contemplation and even contemplation into action. We're on the road. Now, where it's going to take us, I don't know. But if you had this interview with me in another 10 years, 20 years' time, it would be a very different world as long as we kept driving forward. And don't look back and don't stop the car. Just keep going. Learn as you go and we'll get there. Fantastic. All right, very cool. Thank you very much, Stephen. This has been um, this has been really fun. Uh, I didn't expect probably that we'd be talking so long with uh, cartoon characters on the screen, but I'm kind of happy that we did. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good way of introducing the, the the concepts, particularly if we're talking to a younger audience, which we need to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know whether these things even resonate anymore with with uh, young people. Um, uh, yeah, those characters are probably a little bit uh, old school, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> probably. All right, awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, thanks again for your time and, um, you know, yeah, we'll talk cheers, to you Madden. soon. Great work that you're doing and, 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 and keep it up. This is a fantastic series. Well done. Great. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Stephen Carbone for um, being a part of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. What I thought I would do um, just to finish off is to go through those slides that I sort of brushed over when I was with Stephen. I think we covered most of these points, but um, I just thought, you know, the slides are there, so I might as well cover them off. So when we're talking about the dual continuum model, we're really talking about these um, these three big implications, basically. And the first one was around measurement, which I think Stephen, you know, really succinctly um, nailed. But really what we're, ta what you know, what the evidence is suggesting is that 
um, the measurement or the assessment of mental illness alone does not provide an indication of mental well-being. And the opposite is also true. If you're measuring one or the other, you're not getting the full picture of someone's overall mental health. And so when we're wanting to assess overall mental health, we need to be measuring both of those things. Um, but what's really interesting about this idea of the dual continua, obviously we've said already that this sort of um, X and Y axis graph sort of thing is still a simplification, but just bear with us that, you know, under this idea, you get these four subgroups that, that can be formed. Um, you know, those with high, you know, this with, we've already talked about this with the cartoon characters. Um, but the idea is that it, it, it starts to identify these uh, previously invisible subgroups. So, um, you know, again, this is some data from us, uh, from some of our Australian work. It's obviously sort of estimates um, of how we sort of start to see the proportions of these groups um, in our community. Um, we've got the little ninja emoji for that vulnerable group. So, you know, who are up to, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30% um, of our population. So they wouldn't be diagnosed with a mental illness, but they wouldn't be said to have a flourishing level of well-being. So either moderate or languishing. Um, and, and these people are flying under the radar of our services. Um, you know, there's this idea that complete mental health, some people don't like the language of complete and that's, that's completely fine. Oh, completely fine. Um, you know, I don't care about the name here. What it means is that the ideal state is obviously to have a high level of well-being without distress. Um, and, and, and I say ideal in the sense that, um, this is a group of people who are less likely to have a number of other, uh, sort of negative outcomes in their life occur. So that's kind of where we'd like to be ideally. Uh, we see that these groups can be transient, as particularly that uh, that vulnerable group, and and we saw that um, in our data as we followed people throughout the COVID pandemic, that actually um, people could move from that vulnerable either across into the you know a distressed population or or actually up into flourishing as well. And so the sec and you know and the point there is that all of none of those things are possible without the assessment of both well-being and distress in some form. Um, the second implication was around intervention. And so interventions that are designed to improve mental health or mental well-being or positive mental health um, and those that reduce mental illness are not necessarily the same thing. So they're complementary, but they're different. Uh, we don't know a lot about this, I don't think, at the moment, other than the fact that we've seen that some interventions improve well-being without a change in distress and the and the other the opposite is also true so a positive response in one dimension does not guarantee a positive response in the other um and again this is nuance that you don't see if you're just um measuring one or the other and so the idea here is that under the dual continuum model of mental health we can start to understand person to intervention fit so matching exactly what are the components of an intervention that a person needs uh, whether it be either, as you see on the screen, to improve their well-being uh, only, if they were, say, in that languishing, um, vulnerable group, or um, if they need, you know, if they would benefit from both the reduction of distress, but also the promotion of mental well-being at the same time. Uh, or, you know, does that happen in a staged way? Does it happen at the same time? We don't know what works best at the moment. The idea here is that uh, different people in these different categories um, might require different types of interventions and we can Im improve that fit by better understanding their overall mental health and well-being. Um, and the last one was really about system reform, the last implication, the idea that these different subgroups have different risk profiles. So we've said before that, 
those who are who are languishing are almost uh, you know over eight times uh, seven times more likely to um, develop a future mental illness. Um, and again, they're flying under the services, the radar of their services. So we're not really focusing on on how to reduce that risk. Um, so there's a huge piece of work that can be done there around identifying risk and putting in prevent, you know, more targeted prevention. Um, and I guess you can call that early intervention if you like. Um, but then there's also applications for things like stepped care models, which we have in Australia. So the idea that um, that care and and services that are available to people should be sort of um, stepped and matched to intensity of of the issues that they're facing. And the idea here is that at the moment, the early steps, like the low intensity steps, um, don't really have much in them and that they could actually be filled with lots of different well-being um, interventions as a protective factor for future mental illness. And then the final one is this idea of integrated care. So, you know, um, this idea that well-being could become a therapeutic avenue um, to enable recovery. And as I said um, during the during the podcast um, with Stephen, that uh, there are researchers around developing things such as um, well-being therapy, which are, um, you know, clinical applications of well-being and positive um, psychological interventions. So the idea that well-being, the promotion of well-being can be useful um, for recovery. So, you know, in summary, well-being interventions and measurement needs to be embedded um, or should be or could be embedded within the mental health care system for both prevention and recovery of future mental illness. Um, so again, thanks all for listening. Um, like like this episode if you'd enjoyed it or even if you don't, just like it anyway. Share it with someone that you know. Um, subscribe to the channel so you don't miss out on future episodes and thank you very much.